Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics, with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Well, Mark, great to be with you again on another episode of Informed Dissent, and uh, we're bringing a guest back, a very popular guest, and uh, it's it's an honor to have him, and that's Dr. Peter McCullough. Um, our audience, I know, knows him. He's been on our show before. Uh, he is one of the leading spokespeople on COVID. He's an academic physician out of Dallas, an internist, cardiologist, actually sees real patients half the time. And then the other half, he's uh, editing papers, editing journals, and, uh, and fighting the good fight. So Dr. McCullough, welcome back to Informed Dissent. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. Probably like you, I finished with the whole, a whole line of patients today of, of all different questions of COVID and their baseline chronic diseases. So you're right. I think one of the best things about doctors getting in the media is particularly those who see patients is to give that clinical perspective. Hot off the press right now is this new variant called Omicron and uh, out of South Africa. Can you update our audience on what is this variant and why should we care? Well, on November 9th, uh, apparently four young travelers were crossing the border of Botswana and they were actually undergoing asymptomatic testing and they tested positive on the PCR, but the PCR has a unique pattern to it where there's what's called S-gene dropout. The PCR relies on primers for the spike protein, the nucleocapsid, the polymerase, and the envelope protein, but the S protein was dropped out, and so sequencing was done, and then the story was broken that, in fact, a markedly mutated form of the virus was born, and it was named uh, Omicron, and it has over 30 mutations in the spike protein, 10 in the receptor binding domain of the S1 segment. That's, the, that's in a sense, the key that goes into the ACE2 receptor lock, that, that uh, key and keyhole configuration for the viral entry into the human body. There's also mutations in the nucleocapsid and some other proteins that I mentioned. And, uh, but it's far and away, it's far more mutated than Delta, far more mutated than certainly Alpha, Beta, Gamma. And actually, it skips some letters in the in the uh, Greek alphabet by naming by the World Health Organization. But by the um, uh, I think the 26th or so of November, uh, this it was spread, identified uh, to South Africa. There was opinions filed by several South African doctors. It quickly went to Israel, Belgium, uh, and now it's worldwide. It's it's amazing how fast it goes. Now it's going to be more readily identified because there's a pattern off the PCR that can help identify it. So far, what's being reported, I've looked at reports out of South Africa, two different doctors just making their observations, um, that one, it looks like it clearly arose among the vaccinated, that's for sure. There now are cases in the unvaccinated, uh, but the observations are right so, so far mild, relatively little nasopharyngeal symptoms, uh, relatively uh, little in any, if all, any respiratory symptoms, and it's more just some fatigue and malaise and, and myalgia. So let's hope this pattern... Continues. The variants arised from the vaccinated. Are you saying that vaccination pressures this virus to mutate? I'm just saying the case descriptions. The case descriptions are clear from this one. We've got this one nailed down. Remember in Delta, it was clear, right? In Delta, it was unclear because it was it, Delta came out of one of the more heavily vaccinated countries, but we didn't have the case data to say it arose or it was initially discovered in a vaccinated. In this case, we've got it. It looks like it arose or initially was discovered. The first point of discovery was in a vaccinated, and they must have passed it to each other. 
So um, we, we will probably live with that unless there's some other rise. But in general, in general, a paper by Neeson and colleagues, one by Venkata Krishna, and there's a whole series of these, they suggest that once we get to more than 25% vaccinated, that that creates what's considered a non-lethal evolutionary pressure on the virus. And so the virus, then, then the most dominant strain um, survives. And that's what happened with Delta. That's how we got to 99% Delta. We never had 99% wild type or alpha or beta, but we got to 99% Delta because it occurred in the era of indiscriminate vaccination. As you listen to our podcast, maybe you're thinking you've got a message you want the world to hear. Well, I'll tell you, there's a lot to consider. We are produced by The Show Must Go On, and they are big fans of Buzzsprout podcasting as a base for individual operations. If you want to find out more, click the Buzzsprout link in the show notes to find out more. You'll even get a $20 Amazon gift card after your second paid invoice, should you decide to go with podcasting and Buzzsprout. If you want to connect with our producers, use the contact page on our website at informeddissentmedia.com. So this raises a really important question, a public health question, which is that if we keep seeing new variants arising in correlation with increased vaccination, and we know out that these are not actually vaccines. Uh, they're, they're simply therapeutic products. They do not protect against infection. They do not protect against spread. Ergo, they're not vaccines. But just so that people don't get confused, I'll continue to use that word, and I think it's inappropriate, but I'll use it anyway. Given that the people who are receiving these vaccines are getting infected, and they're getting infected at incredibly high rates, variants are coming from that population is it, not, is it not reasonable then to assume that the vaccination program, as it stands, if it continues, will lead us down a course of essentially an endless supply, an emergence of new variants that will have no conclusion? I mean, it's certainly possible, but, you know, the backstop is natural immunity. So it doesn't matter what variant. Exactly. Once we get to natural immunity, there should be progressively uh, less spread. Now, it's interesting, you know, some of that central part of Africa, so from uh, south of the Saharan Desert, but before uh, South Africa, that central portion, they're only about 6% vaccinated. So that's not a heavily vaccinated area. And it just so happened the travelers who were there were vaccinated, and they're the ones where that where that popped out with the Omicron, um, uh, uh, popped out, uh, Omicron or Omicron uh, uh, popped out. But having said that, all we can do is look at the literature. Right now, there's an analysis by Subramanian and colleagues that's analyzed the most heavily vaccinated countries and the least heavily vaccinated countries and looked at the problem of COVID in terms of cases, hospitalizations, and mortality. And it's going in the wrong direction. So the more heavily vaccinated countries are having the worst time with COVID. Their their post-vaccination curves are worse than their pre-vaccination curves. And that would include Iceland and, and Israel and Gibraltar and uh, the UK is nearly there, although they've got a, a blend. And, um, you know, many have been calling, starting from a, a lab in France and then a author block that I'm in, Bruno and colleagues, and then uh, the evidence-based consulting group in the UK, Tesla. We've all been calling for a long time to shut down the program, to just go ahead and pause the program with the current sets of vaccines, do a safety analysis um, that we weren't 
we weren't making an impact on the pandemic. The supermedian analysis suggests this, but instead what we've seen is doubling down. I'm saying, listen, take more vaccines. Uh, we have reports out of uh, uh, Vienna, Austria today that they're they're very close to forced vaccination at this moment. The data out of the UK that I read last week showed that between ages of 10 to 65, the vaccinated population has an all-cause mortality rate 100% higher than that of the unvaccinated which is even if there's statistical error and there's some mild confounders, fine. But that's an enormous discrepancy that really can't be erased by fudging numbers, which leads me to conclude that the vaccines are actually causing people to die. Now, we can argue and discuss what the reason is that for, for a long time, but, but clearly more people are dying because of the vaccines uh, than those that are not getting the vaccines. Especially athletes. Well, well, well let, me just, let me just make a comment first. Um, regarding dying of COVID-19 as the problem, I think the variable we have to get a handle on is who previously had COVID. Do you know many of these analyses never ask the question, did you have COVID before? And so we now know, um, uh, you know, I've been saying this for a long time, that you can't get COVID twice, that natural immunity is robust, complete, and durable. All the studies that even purport the, the, that they think they have a second case, when you look carefully, uh, in fact, it's not a second case. It's just a it's, it's a false positive PCR or it was a misdiagnosed influenza COVID confusion. There aren't any bona fide second cases, though. But though lead attorney Aaron Siri and co-counsel Elizabeth Brem, through a Freedom of Information Act request to the CDC, said, listen, if you've got a second case, if you've ever had somebody get a second case of COVID and they spread it to somebody else and you document all this, show it. And the CDC finally responded, we don't have such a case. And in fact, the CDC has 41,000 cases of fully vaccinated vaccine failures. And that's not the universe. That's actually what they've documented on their website. They don't have a single case of natural immunity failure. It seems then that we can easily conclude, given that these variants are, uh, as one person said, uh, (laughs) 100 percent contagious and 100 percent asymptomatic, um, only half jokingly, that the death rate is dropping very, very rapidly. And if natural immunity is really the end game and the only way for us to develop a robust and complete enduring immune response to the virus and all of its variants, that that really what we should be focusing on is treating people who are sick and people who get infected, rather than trying to endlessly protect them from a virus that they're going to catch eventually, and which a vaccine is not going to prevent them from catching. You know, I agree with those comments, but I, I want to update the listeners with a, a few quotes and uh, citations, and I think this is important. People have asked the question, listen, you know, do the vaccines do anything? I co-presented with uh, Scott Atlas, who used to be on the White House task force, and you know he was on the inside for a while, so Scott had uh, the insight. And Scott made the case: listen, the vaccines protect against uh, they protect against death. And uh, we went over the data. Scott's uh, very solid. Uh, you know he's at, at the Hoover Institute. And so the paper that is one of the most supportive papers. It I swear it must have 50 authors on. It's published in JAMA from the Ivy Network. It was just published in, uh, I believe, October. So we had to wait a long time to see if the vaccines ever did anything. The first author is 1040, Mark 1040. And they do a case control study where they have um, they have 1983 vaccinated and they have 2350 unvaccinated controls. So it's not huge, but it's, it's reasonably well controlled. The overall protection against hospitalization 
was an 85% calculated vaccine efficacy. Again, not randomized. But when we got down to progression data, I'm looking at table of figure three in the paper. They're down to now progression of disease in the hospital, 59% protection against that composite variable. Then when you get to death, this is the bottom line, death. Death occurred, and this is the best paper that the NIH IV network has, death occurred in nine of 142 cases of the vaccine breakthrough cases, and 91 of the 1055 unvaccinated cases, that's 6.3 versus 8.6%, and the p-value is 0.36. Now, that's the best the NIH has. The VA um, is a bigger study. Barbara Cohn and colleagues, not necessarily people sick with COVID, but they have 780,225 subjects, age over 65. Importantly, non-COVID-related deaths, those vaccinated do better than the unvaccinated for non-COVID-related deaths. So that implies, you guys, selection bias, right? So those who selected themselves to receive a vaccine are more likely to survive than those who didn't select themselves for a vaccine for a variety of reasons. But for COVID, COVID positive and died, there was a protective benefit. And the absolute difference in that number is about 1.2% absolute difference in those survival curves at about um, four months. So I can tell you, yes, Scott Atlas is right. Age over 65, it's about a 1.2% difference in those survival curves. For age under 65, I'm looking at it right now. It's less than a 1% difference. And one of the things in the cone paper is in September, all the protection fell off a cliff. Moderna went from 90% protection against infection down to 59%. Pfizer went from 87% down to 47%. And J&J went from 85% all the way down to like 17%. So what happened in September is A, the six-month expiration uh, ran out on the vaccines, and B, that the Delta variant fully shaded in. That is summarizes the best that the vaccines have. Now, none of those papers do any estimate of safety. What was the consequences of taking the vaccine? They just assume that you take the vaccine and everything's fine. But those are the best data. So I do say, yes, the vaccines did do something for those who took them. Some of it's selection bias, some of it's real, but it's short acting and it's pretty small. 1.2%. One, 1. <laughs> <laughs> So let me let me ask you this. You, you not very uh, impressive. You went you went through this whole academic exercise, and hopefully we didn't lose too much of our audience. Is there is there anybody <laughs> at this point that you would recommend get a vaccine? Now remember, we're doctors. We can't recommend the vaccine because they're all research. Just like I can't recommend a patient be in my diabetes research study. If I told them, listen, you have to be in my diabetes research study. You know, immediately one of the nurses would blow me into the IRB. I'd be called. I'd be sanctioned. So, no, <laughs> doctors cannot recommend patients take the vaccine. They cannot because it violates research code. It violates the Nuremberg Code when the Office of Human Research Protections in Washington is all over that. So no good doctor has ever recommended the vaccine. No doctor society can recommend because it it's research. We can't provide any pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal. Now, if a patient asks us, regarding participation in the vaccine program, then we can give a fair assessment. Um, like I say, the French group, the Bruno, uh, and now the Evans-based consulting group have all come out and said, pull the vaccines, 
off the off the market because safety. I've come out publicly and said that based on my analysis. So the answer is no. If they ask me, I would say no. I'm I'm actually suggesting just the opposite to a seventy year old reasonably healthy person um, comes and asks you your opinion whether they should enroll in this investigational study with any of the three vaccines. What do you tell them? I just tell them the data. Kostoff analysis showed that Ron Kostoff published toxicology reports. Someone that age has five times the risk of dying of the vaccine than taking their chances of getting COVID and ultimately dying a respiratory death of COVID. And it assumes no treatment. It assumes the patient's denied any treatment. If we say, listen, we can treat COVID anyway, the answer is no. So it's a very unfavorable trade-off. Now, if someone says, listen, I am scared to death of COVID. I'd rather take my chances. Patients can do that. They're part of the research program. They can do that. But there's enough known now that it's an unfavorable um, trade-off. A new, new patient comes down with COVID. We get a positive test, typical symptoms. We're a couple, three days into it. What's the most effective treatment that you would recommend uh, for this patient, assuming access to everything that is uh, otherwise what available? What age, Jeff? Uh, let's say they're 50 years old. 50. Oh, that's, that's a tough one. It's right on the borderline. You know, our original publication said, listen, if you're below age 50, you have a less than 1% risk of hospitalization and death. And so we actually, outside of nutraceuticals, we recommended no treatment age uh, 50 and otherwise healthy. I have to tell you, I've changed my opinion in the Delta outbreak. I've been very impressed. Delta has been very hard to treat, high viral loads, prolonged illness, hit younger people. So I'm more aggressive. So if a 50-year-old really had any additional problems, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, heart or kidney disease, lung disease, I would get them a monoclonal antibody. I'm so impressed with the GSK product, Sotirivimab, which is a monoclonal antibody directed against the glycoprotein uh, side chain of the spike protein that's not susceptible to mutation. So this is the- Better than Regeneron. Yeah, well, it's got an 85% reduction in hospitalization and death. Remember, Regeneron only hit 50% reductions there. And Regeneron is a pair of monoclonal antibodies, but it's to a part of the spike protein that's far more subject to mutation. Now, we still use a lot of Regeneron because that's what a lot of centers have. The Bamalivimav product uh, quickly uh, got obsolete because of a mutation, the alpha variant, basically the mutation in alpha was basically the spot with bamlivimab attached. And so it was useless, but Lilly's revived it, combining it with etisivimab. And so now that revived product is again available. So American doctors should have about three monoclonal antibodies. I think they should consider doing it. You see podcaster Joe Rogan recently, Aaron Rodgers, you're starting to see this become more mainline. You can basically give it over an hour with observation or one can actually get four subcutaneous injection, four quadrant uh, injections like in the abdominal subcutaneous fat, but it's two cc's per injection. So that's a lot of volume. If it was me, I'd, I'd take the IV infusion and go home. Do you practice saying the names of these monoclonals like in front of a mirror to make sure you get them They right? are hard, but I want to tell the listeners these monoclonal <laughs> antibodies are safe and effective. They're underutilized. We originally had 100,000 dose, yeah, 100, doses purchased and shelved. And then we, have a, uh, we had another order to have, make them for 500,000. That was back in November of 2020. I mean, come on, they're underutilized. There should be billboards helping people. I, I tell every public program, the seniors, make a few phone calls, figure out where your centers are, figure out if you need a doctor's order or will the doctor on staff do it. Is it first come, first servers is scheduled and frontline these monoclonals because when we do that, it makes the other sequence of drugs so much easier to use. Is sub-Q as effective as IV? You no, know, the clinical trial was not 
an acute treatment trial. It's interesting. The clinical trial was actually a um, close household contact prophylaxis study. So they were seniors, and they had close contacts. I think they had to be over 65. And let's say you had a husband wife, and the husband got it and the wife didn't. The wife would be eligible to actually get the sub-Q injections. And it was enormously preventive. I mean, it prevented you know, a large fraction of cases. So um, most people have said, listen, it's the same principles. This is a you know, precautionary principle. This mass casualty event. Go ahead and find the best way to do it. And, and I, I, I was just on a large call of very experienced doctors, and they all agreed you can give it both ways. But the, the four sub-Q shots is such a big sub-Q volume. By the time you do all that, you'd be better off just getting an IV stuff. No, you, you know, I'll tell you a quick story. My son attends school in Michigan, and my wife and I were going to visit. And uh, he had a professor of his come down with COVID. She attempted to get monoclonal antibodies. Uh, the closest place that they would give it to her was Ann Arbor, Michigan, about an hour and a half away. And their protocols was such that she was excluded from getting um, uh, um, Regeneron. Um, so I have Regeneron in my office. So I, I packed it in, in ice and I brought it with us because we were going there anyways. And um, I didn't have IV supplies. So I did bring needles for subcutaneous administration. It's actually quite easy. It's not as big of a deal. 2.5 cc's times four in the four quadrants. It's actually very easy. Uh, it's minimally uncomfortable. And within 48 hours, she was up and around and, and feeling a whole heck of a lot better. I just don't understand why there's such restrictions on this stuff. We should make it widespread like Governor DeSantis has done in Florida. I completely agree. One of the most frustrating things I've seen is that I'll send a patient for a monoclonal antibody infusion. Let's say it's an ER. And there'll be some determination that the patient is too sick and they need to be admitted. And as soon as they cross the line of being admitted, actually they change the status in the computer, they're no longer eligible, quote, for the monoclonal antibody infusion. And then they then they actually, in the hospital, they get remdesivir late or minimal treatment. And I've actually had one death of a 38-year-old man and it still it breaks my heart that his wife got the monoclonal antibody and she survives and then he doesn't get it and he dies and they have oh, the same syndrome. And that's horrible. Now the young family, oh, this was heartbreaking. It's like, how can they do that? And I said, you know, this emergency use authorization is, is, is such a new, relatively loose uh, re uh, legislation. There, there's nothing that would stop a doctor uh, to, to give a drug when someone's status in the computer is either admitted or outpatient. To me, it's no difference. Just give it and give it early. They're safe and effective. And I think it's just criminal, these types of things that are happening. You know, and another quick story, syndicated talk radio host Dennis Prager is a patient of mine. He shared this publicly, so I'm not disclosing anything. He came down with COVID. He's in a relatively high risk group. Now, he was taking ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine preventatively, so I think it mitigated some of his symptoms. Uh, but he lives out way out in the San Fernando Valley, and there is a local USC clinic that he went to per my direction to get monoclonals. And they told him, I'm sorry, Mr. Prager, we can't give it to you. You don't meet our protocol. But what we can do and what we'd like to do is admit you to the hospital and treat you with remdesivir. Now, fortunately, he and his wife, Sue, were smart enough to say, oh, hell no, we're not doing that. And instead, they drove about an hour and a half down to Orange County to a um, Regeneron clinic that is run by a friend of mine. They both got Regeneron. They went back home. Within 48 hours, Dennis was feeling better. Two days later, he was back on the air. You know, I have to tell you a really funny anecdote, too, since we're on anecdotes. Someone close to my circles, my uh, uh, spiritual circles, got covid and we decided to go for a monoclonal antibody, but it's a bit late. 
and um, he went to uh, a freestanding ER that we knew was pretty good at giving monoclonals. And then the doctor lords over him with arms crossed and said, are you vaccinated? <laughs> and then his answer oh, no. was, I declined to answer that question. And the ER doctor looked at him and he goes, and the, and the patient said, I want a monoclonal antibody infusion. So he gets a monoclonal antibody infusion. And then on the way out the door, he goes, hey, doc, he goes, that question you asked me, what if I would have told you I'm vaccinated or not vaccinated? He goes, well, it's pretty simple. If you told me you were vaccinated, I would have given you remdesivir. And if you told me you were unvaccinated, I would have given you the antibodies. And he goes, great, I'm unvaccinated. I'm good. But it goes to show you the perverse, arbitrary decision-making that's done. I've sent patients to get the monoclonal antibody, and they're very sick and hypoxemic. And, and they say, well, no, you're not sick enough. Go home. I've, I've said, oh, you're too sick. Get admitted. You can't get the monoclonal antibody. So the monoclonal antibody infusion program needs standardization. It needs quality control. It needs outcomes. I recently gave a doctor's program in Amarillo, Texas for 120 doctors, and we went over early treatment, vaccine safety. There was one doctor kind of on the side of the room pacing a little bit, and he was wearing a mask. He was the only one in the room wearing a mask. And so afterwards, I, you know, I had a sense that maybe he, he was, you know, armed with a question. He, he goes, I got a question. He has his notepad. He goes, I'm the public director, health director here. He's Dr. So-and-so. He goes, and I want to tell you, we have a great monoclonal antibody infusion program, and, and I'm in charge of it, and what have you. I said, terrific. I said, good for you. This is great. He goes, but my major point is 85% of our people in the hospital are unvaccinated. You know, he just wanted to really give that exclamation point. And I said, well, listen, the vaccine is not a treatment. What percent of people in the hospital did you give the monoclonal antibodies in your program? Uh, how about that? He goes, oh, we're not keeping track of that. It's like, you no, know, that's what you want to know. The people getting admitted, are you missing the therapeutic opportunity of your antibodies? You want to improve the use of your monoclonal antibodies. And it's, it's so obvious to me that people are not thinking straight. They're not thinking therapeutically. The vaccine's not a treatment, but the monoclonal antibodies are. That's what you want to know. Did you get the no. pre-hospital monoclonal antibodies or not? This is such a good point, Peter. This is never, ever, ever mentioned. All we hear about is pandemic of the unvaccinated. All the people in the hospital are unvaccinated. That, first of all, that isn't true. I know it's not true because in other countries, it's predominantly vaccinated people. Great Britain, Israel, uh, Iceland, uh, Seychelles, Gibraltar, all these places that, that actually create good data and keep it, unlike the United States, which is so politicized, show that that's the case. But putting that to the side, let's say it is true. The real question is exactly the one you asked. How many of the people that are in the hospital now that are unvaccinated actually got treatment and then were hospitalized? Exactly. I what bet is it's it? Zero point one percent. It's like nobody. If everybody got treatment, they wouldn't be in the hospital. That's well, the whole point. And all we do is continue to invest <clears throat> in vaccination prevention as opposed to actually treating patients, which is really what our job well, is. Well, you know, there was a paper, and I think it's important, you know, this is one of the reasons why we this call to kind of review the data. There's a paper by Ng and colleagues, NG is the last name, and it was early in the pandemic. It was spring of the pandemic last year. It's from New Jersey. And the answer was of those patients admitted about 7% had gotten some outpatient treatment. And back then, the only thing they got was a little hydroxychloroquine. It's the only thing they got. But of interest, of those 7% who had some pre-hospital treatment, they had a markedly improved survival 
compared to those who had no pre-hospital treatment. And that's been my experience. Even if I have a sick patient, like I've got one in the hospital right now, he has been absolutely loaded with pre-hospital treatment. We've done monoclonal antibodies. We've done ivermectin, steroids, anticoagulants. And I got to tell you what, it's been pretty rough. He's been He's not been intubated. He's been up to 100% oxygen. But today he's down to around 60%. I've talked to him, talked to his wife. He's going to get through this, I'm confident, now, without mm. going on the mechanical ventilator. I can tell you him, with zero pre-hospital treatment, he would be 100% on the ventilator going down that complicated road to death. Are monoclonals the most effective early treatment that we have? You know, I, I have to tell you, there's two things that are very close and they're so different. One is the monoclonal antibodies. The best data is with sotirivimab. Uh, that's at 85% reduction in hospitalization and death. And then there you go again with right, those names. But, but listen to this. You know what the <laughs> other treatment that has such a big treatment effect, prospective, um, a randomized uh, controlled trial, believe it or not, povidone iodine. Povidone mm-hmm. iodine. We're now up to seven studies of povidone iodine, six, uh, seven, 2,000 patients. And the trial is Chowdhury and colleagues. And it was patients coming down with COVID 19. They're all PCR positive. And one group just actually does oral and nasal washes very intensively, even eye drops, but just with uh, just with lukewarm water versus uh, povidone iodine. So we're talking about a 10% iodine standard uh, um, liquid and diluting it like two teaspoons to, in six ounces of water. Gargling. You're talking about betadine, betadine that you can buy over the counter. Right. You buy it over the counter and take a syringe bulb squirt it up in the nose and actually sniff it back to the point where you can spit it out. So you got to actually get all the way through that cycle. And in the Chowdhury trial, in incipient COVID-19, they did that every four hours. And I have to tell you, the data are so striking. A, they knocked down the PCR quicker than you can ever imagine. They knocked that PCR down. And I'm just going to give you the data. It's so gratifying to tell you this story. Um, that, uh, and people need to hear that. And this is a rinse. This is a rinse. This, this is, is not a rinse. This is not swallowing no, and you drinking do not swallow. as it is Thank with you. other Thank drugs. Thank you, Mark. But, but, <laughs> but, but this is available. You know, in, con- in, countries, in countries where they're starved of any treatment, they really want to know what can they do to help themselves. Listen to this Chowdhury uh, protocol. So at the start, it's 303 patients in each group. By day three, and 303 in each group are all PCR positive. Low cycle threshold. At day three, it, the, the, it went in the uh, povidone iodine group, went down to 35 patients who are still positive, and the 292 in the control group. Day five, we're down to 24 patients who are still PCR positive. Wow. Day five, wow. 268 patients in the um, control group are still positive. And day seven, it's only eight patients in the povidone iodine versus 213 wow in the uh, control group. Now, the outcomes are astonishing. In the povidone iodine group, two out of 303 are hospitalized without needing oxygen, 14 in control. Those hospitalized needing oxygen, 10 versus 63, and then death is two versus 17. I have to tell you, that is so impressive. The other uh, supportive studies, there's a wonderful analysis by Chopra and colleagues with all the preclinical data, I, I can't be more high on this. And I and I have to tell you personally, my biggest regret is I had COVID-19 before the Chowdhury trial, and I literally let it bake in my nose and mouth for three days before it invaded my lungs, and I regret it. And what I know now is I would have been on that povidone iodine, blasting it 
knocking down mm -hmm. the viral mm -hmm. load, particularly with Delta and now the Omicron um, uh, uh, variant, knocking it down. So even if I get it, I get a much shorter and milder syndrome. So you take a bottle of betadine and into six ounces of water, you put two teaspoons. And, and here's the thing, Jeff, if it burns... Does that what hang hang on? Does that does that water need to be sterile water? It could be tap water if you're going to throw it out afterwards. If it's going to be sterile water, if you want to use it later in the day, it really depends on what you want to do. Most people just use tap water because you know it's two teaspoons. You have a big bottle of betadine. You're not going to use the whole thing, so you're just going to throw it out. But here's the deal: you use two teaspoons, six ounces of water. If there's any burning at all, drop it down to one teaspoon. You can add a little pinch of salt because the nasal passages is like a little bit more salineized. Okay, and warm it a little bit so it's not so cold. And use like, you can use a little pediatric a bulb syringe or a nasal spray bottle and you gotta make sure you sniff it back. When you gargle it, it's brown. So you gargle it, you spit it out and follow it with scope or Listerine to clear your mouth. That's also virucidal slightly. And what you can do is on days you go out and you just had some congregate setting exposure, you can go home and just do it before you go to bed and you're done. Or do it, do, do any prevention. prevention. About two times a day prevention is fine. If you've had post-exposure, you went somewhere and someone goes, uh-oh, I have COVID, I would go home and I would do that about four times a day for three days. And, and that's, that's prophylaxis. And then active treatment, the Chowdhury protocol, is actually as much as you can every four hours. And you knock it down. And when I had COVID, I wish I would have done that. I think I could have, I had ultimately 35 days of symptoms. I think I could have shaved it down. And I, I can't, if I, I go I go over this wow. with every single patient. I've had some uh, educators help me with a nice handout. I send it out. I'll send it off to you, Jeff. Please, please do. Yeah, please do. I've heard you talk about it on uh, America Out Loud, the McCullough Report, by the way, for those listening. It is absolutely wonderful. I, I listen to it regularly. There's a Q&A section that is, that is fantastic. But tell the truth. You're, you're getting paid by the Betadine company, You know, right? I'm not. And you know what? I Honestly, <laughs> I was in the airport the other day, and I got a wonderful call from an uh, oral uh, nasal uh, specialist, ENT or oral, oral surgeon. ENT. And he goes, you know what? He goes, we've been doing this for complicated sinusitis for years. He goes, let me show you my sinusitis handout from five years ago, whatever. And it was the same Betadine protocol. He goes, uh, my brother, uh. he goes, I've treated my brother for bacterial sinusitis. The top is, is Hannah says sinusitis. It's really COVID sinusitis. I said, oh my gosh, it's like everything that's old is new again. And these are just reasonable things. Now, if you can't, if you have a hyperfunctioning nodule, Graves' disease or iodine allergy, you can change and use dilute hydrogen peroxide. And again, there, there's a range of dilutions. You need almost a little bit to do it. That can, it's a little hard to squirt it up. So you can actually nebulize it up in the nose. That's fine. You can add a little Lugoyle's iodine uh, to it, a couple of drops if that's tolerated. And, you know, as long as you're doing something, people use colloidal silver up the nose. People actually use sodium hypochlorite, which is a few drops of household bleach in a glass of water just for the mouth. Don't want to do it in the nose or eyes. But what the point is, we've been hyper-focused on hand sanitizer. Remember Sanjay Gupta teaching people to sterilize pizza boxes? I, I was on Laura Ingram. I said, no, Laura, it doesn't go in on pizza boxes. It's in a respiratory illness, and it, it's not transmitted by the hands. That was the most ridiculous thing. So this oral nasal hygiene, most important. Can you do that during pregnancy? I, in pregnancy, I think I'd stay away from the iodine products, I, you know, just because I'm cautious, and I think uh, hydrogen peroxide, very dilute, would be fine. Dilute hydrogen peroxide, same, same concept. Yeah, excellent. Well, I'm going to incorporate that into my treatment protocol for sure. Yeah, I can tell you right now, I have enough experience with it. I, I got I got onto it late, 
and I was influenced by anti-infective dentist Paul Gossett, who I initially brought on the McCullough Report, and then reviewed the Chowdhury data and the Chopra synthesis paper that came out. It just became so compelling that I noticed the FLCC group led by Pierre Corey and Paul Merrick, they adopted it. It just seems so clear. Um, I just had a, a, a big, broad program before this. There had to be hundreds of treating doctors on. Every single one of them uh, was nodding in affirmation. They, they do something oral nasal now. They just do not let the virus percolate without any local treatment. And you know what? I've actually gotten away from prophylactic hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin because the local treatment is so good. I, I tell the patients, listen, you know, the hydroxy and ivermectin will work once you have systemic invasion. But you don't want to wait to that level. You want to use the oral nasal approach. Now, I've, I haven't heard Dr. Fauci talk about uh, nasal uh, and oral uh, treatments. Are we, expect, are we expecting Emperor Fauci to come out and tell us about that I kind had of a very revealing dinner two weeks ago with Scott Atlas. I presented with Scott in Columbus, Ohio, Ohio State. And um, I, I did it. I said, Scott, you're on the inside. you got to tell me because all we do is review papers and we go over data and we're so assiduous. And he goes, he goes, I have to tell you what it was like on the inside. He goes, I'm just like Peter McCullough. I, I analyzed the data. I showed up with papers. I went to these meetings and the people you mentioned showed up with no data. They don't, they're completely unprepared week after week after week. They don't review any studies. They don't. I think Scott has a book coming Maybe out. Scott's book has come out. And what Scott has basically said is, listen, this is a crisis of the incompetent. His conclusion is they're incompetent. The heads of the CDC, the NIH, NIAD division, that they're sexually incompetent. They are not reviewing data. They decided a long time ago the only thing they were going to do is promote the vaccine. They don't even care about the data with the vaccines. Well, of course, Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s new book, uh, The Real Anthony Fauci, which I know you are, are mentioned in multiple times, talks about his history of incompetence. This is not new to COVID. This has been going on for 20, 30, 40 years. Well, now that we're doing book review, I want to mention, so Bobby Kennedy's book is absolutely well-reviewed, and everyone I've talked to says incredible. So Robert F. Kennedy, The Real Anthony Fauci, Peter Bregan, COVID-19, The Global Predators, that one is doing very well. It's number one in Amazon Medical a, a week or two ago. Pam Popper's book, COVID Operation, uh, is doing incredibly well. Scott Atlas's book. And then lastly, I spent time with um, African-American kind of media personality in Baton Rouge, Diane Andrews. And Diane had a book out last year. The nice thing about Diane that I really helped me understand things is she reviewed with me Tuskegee. Tuskegee. And I really, she opened my eyes to a wonderful interaction. Great, great lady. Tuskegee was run by the CDC and the Public Health Service from 1932 to 1972, Macon County, Alabama, they had se they had several hundred African American men. Some had syphilis, some didn't. They weren't told their status. They were given uh, minerals and things that were kind of were told to be placebos. They're basically placebos to quote, prevent syphilis. They let the syphilis evolve in them. They let the syphilis be transmitted to the spouses and the progeny. When penicillin became widely available, uh, it became available in 1944. Widely available in 1948. They actually didn't tell them. They actually suppressed penicillin distribution to them in the local pharmacies. The CDC ran this all the way to 1972. Um, basically, there was people were so enraged by this that there was uh, firings and Senate hearings. The CDC never apologized. Never. In fact, it took Bill Clinton in 1994 to say, "I'm sorry," and give some reparations then to this time to the progeny of these poor men. 
dealt with refugees. What's the name of that book? It's, it's Diane Andrews' book, and um, I think it's called COVID Cover-Up. Now, it's an early book, and Tuskegee is a minor part of it, but she basically gave me the verbal review of Tuskegee, and I obviously I have it now. I understand it. But you know what Diane's point is? She goes, listen, the CDC didn't say they're sorry, and they did this for decades. Do you think the CDC is going to say sorry for the COVID-19 vaccine program? No way. Of course not. Speaking speaking of books, my co-host, Dr. Mark McDonald, has a wonderful book out, and you ought to consider having him on the McCullough Report. It's called The United States of Fear, How America Fell Victim to a Mass Delusional Psychosis. So it's a wonderful book. It's an easy read, and uh, it's it's quite uh, it's quite striking, Mike Mark's um, psychological perspective on this whole pandemic. Well, now that you brought it up, uh, Jeff, maybe we can ask Mark, Mark, uh, have you had a chance to review um, some of the videos uh, that there's a couple of them out by um, Dr. Dr. Matthias Desmet from University of Ghent in clinical psychology? I actually watched one of his primary videos uh, about a week or two ago that had been recorded earlier. I think it had about 750,000 views at the time that I saw it. And he interestingly came to the same conclusion in parallel that I did, except in Europe. And he called mass delusional psychosis mass formation, although it's the, basically the same term, a group of people all going crazy at the same time. And I completely agree with his thesis, which is that there are uh, three main preconditions necessary to reach a what he calls a mass formation or a state of uh, social craziness. And the first is a lack of meaning in one's life. And that comes from a destruction of church, civic organizations, family structure, uh, a sense of isolation in an urban community, uh, postmodern uh, sadness and depression and, and angst that, that comes on uh, from not having a sense of, uh, of groundedness. The second is a severing of human ties. And this, in some ways, is, is similar and linked up with the, with the first. And we see this very much now in the last two, five, ten years with social media, telephones, Zoom. People aren't having face-to-face interactions. Children are socially maladept, autistic, uh, aren't unable to communicate with language. They use emojis and text messages. Masking, of course, in the last two years has made that incredibly difficult to to become uh, connected to people through facial expressions. And then the third, which I found to be the most interesting, is what he called untethered anxiety. Meaning we are, we are an anxious race. Uh, the West is very anxious and we don't really have a reason or a place to put that anxiety. It's just there all the time. It's like a vibrational energy of, of, of discomfort, of stress, of worry. And then two years ago, the government comes and announces, guess what, everybody? There's a deadly virus out there that we all have to be afraid of. All of a sudden, there's now a tether to that anxiety. There's a purpose. There's a meaning. There's a communality with other mask wearers. All of those three preconditions are now all fulfilled, and they're all amplified and reinforced by the government. You are given authorization to be all of those three things, to be meaningless, to be untethered, and to have no interpersonal relationships, and the government will solve all of it. And people just all oriented like a flex of iron under a magnetic field, all oriented towards the government. And they all began to follow in line. And that's how they became mass delusionally psychotic. Mark, I think, I think that's I'm going to need therapy now. Well, you know, the thing, I, actually, you described it perfectly. I guess the term I remember him saying is free-floating anxiety, which is another way to describe it. But the key thing is 
The key thing is you idea. have these three elements, and then at the very end, you're offered a solution. And so the solution is the vaccine in this case, but, you know, he uses other examples. That's right. And he says, you know, the, the ridiculousness or the absurdity of the solution, there's no end to the absurdity to the solution. There's all kinds of, you can think of examples with mass suicides and things of this nature where the absurdity is to ultimately take your own life. But but um, but here the absurdity is a vaccine which has basically been a wrecking machine, and, and yet people are, right. are just embracing it, and, and weaponizing it, and uh, and you know to keep doubling and quadrupling down on it, and and so I thought I thought his explanation uh, was pretty solid. Now he he did, he does research there, and he was actually disappointed in himself that he didn't recognize it as quickly enough as he thought. Right. That's right. Because he's been studying it for for decades about how this mass formation has occurred or mass delusional psychosis uh, in the past 50, 70, 80, 100 years. And he said, I completely missed it. Uh, he's, he was quite humble and, and self-effacing. So good. Well, Mark, listen, I'm going to have you on the McCullough Report. I've been focusing on molecular biology with Bruce Patterson. But listen, <laughs> we've got to get to this. And I want I want to, on the, a different audience, go over the book. I think this is going to be so good. Um, uh, I'll, I'll try to bring it up. I'm going on Joe Rogan next week. Um, nice. Wow. Later That's on, I'm going to film, uh, hopefully with Robert F. Kennedy on site for a movie. And, you know, we're all mm. we're all kind of characters in this relatively big story. That's fantastic. Well, well listen, Peter, we, you've been on with us for a long time. We're, we greatly appreciate it. Thank you so <laughs> much. And uh, listen, congratulations for, for helping to lead us out of this pandemic and to talk some sense into both the medical and non-medical community. And uh, it's an honor to have you on and, and uh, in some ways to fight alongside you. So thank you so much for joining us and, and hopefully we'll talk okay, to you great. again soon. Thanks to both of you. You may have noticed a new link to Instacart in the show notes of this podcast today. Maybe you didn't have time and that is the point of Instacart. Saving you time and money to do other more important things like spending time with family. Instacart is shopping done for you. By the way, shopping at many of your favorite stores save time for you and your family by shopping through Instacart. All your favorite stores all in one order. The online and mobile app lets you pick your products and even highlight sale items for you. The shoppers are trained to pick the very freshest produce and they'll even keep your eggs safe. And here's the best part. Delivery to your door in as fast as one hour. Help out our podcast by clicking the link in the show notes when you make your next purchase. You've been listening to Informed Dissent with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics.